Hi, I'm Graham Abbott and welcome to Classics Unlocked, a program brought to you by Universal Music and Classics Direct. Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky's life covered the second half of the 19th century and he wrote some of the best-known classical music in the world, Swan Lake, the 1812 Overture, The Nutcracker. In his music, he aimed to blend Russian nationalism with the Western European mainstream, and this led him to write symphonies. In this program, we're going to survey all seven of Tchaikovsky's symphonies, which comprise six numbered symphonies and another, the Manfred Symphony, which stands apart from the other six. All music in this program is performed by the Russian National Orchestra under Mikhail Pletnyov on the Deutsche Grammophon label. In early 1866, aged 25, Tchaikovsky was appointed to the staff of the Moscow Conservatoire. Being able to make a living teaching, performing and composing music was a dream come true for Tchaikovsky, whose formal training had been in legal administration. The director of the conservatoire, Nikolai Rubinstein, encouraged him to make a splash in the musical world by writing a symphony. Within a few months, the work was largely finished, but many of the colleagues to whom he showed it found much to criticise. Still, Rubinstein's encouragement continued, and it was he who conducted the highly successful premiere in February 1868. Tchaikovsky gave the first symphony a title, which is usually rendered in English as Winter Daydreams. He revised the score several times in later years, but he maintained a soft spot for it and called it A Sin of My Sweet Youth. It's always interesting to try to spot influences in the early works of famous composers, and in Tchaikovsky's first symphony, the overwhelming influence is Mendelssohn. From the title, suggesting a landscape, as Mendelssohn did in the Italian and Scottish symphonies, to an ability to create feather-like textures, the spirit of Mendelssohn is often audible in Winter Daydreams. This is especially so in the third movement, which suggests the Mendelssohn of A Midsummer Night's Dream. In Russian musical circles in the 19th century, the big debate was the degree to which Russian composers should follow Western European ideas, which emphasised form and technique. Among those who opposed following the West were a group of composers known as the Russian Five, led by Mili Balakirev. 
The others were Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, Alexander Borodin, Modest Mazorsky and César Cui. Their view was that technique and Western priorities weren't important and that truly Russian music must originate from Russian sources. To be truly Russian for the Russian Five often meant basing music on Russian folk song or legends. Tchaikovsky had no patience with the Five. He regarded them as opinionated amateurs. They, in turn, often strongly criticised him. However, one aspect of the Five's views did permeate Tchaikovsky's music, and this was his occasional use of Russian folk song as the basis for his melodic material. The first symphony only once suggests a Russian folk song in the finale, but when Tchaikovsky came to write his second symphony five years later, it was almost as if he'd gone over to the other side. The second symphony makes more use of folk song than any other work of his. Three of the four movements are based on traditional melodies. It'll come as no surprise then that the five and their followers greatly approved of the work, which Tchaikovsky wrote in only six months in 1873. It was a success with audiences right from the start, but the composer, as usual, harboured doubts. He substantially revised it a few years later. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Second Symphony has a nickname which is translated as Little Russian. In Tsarist Russia, Little Russia denoted the region we now call Ukraine. But unlike the nickname for the First Symphony, the Little Russian nickname only came to be attached to this work after Tchaikovsky's death. The Ukrainian connection lies in the fact that the folk songs evoke visits Tchaikovsky made to his sister's estate in that region. The grand opening of the last movement suggests a passing resemblance with the main tune in Mussorgsky's Great Gate of Kiev. This is because both Tchaikovsky and Mussorgsky based their respective melodies on the same folk song, called The Crane.
The third symphony was written at phenomenal speed in 1875, two years after the second, and completed in only two months. Again, there's a nickname which was only added after Tchaikovsky's death. In 1899, the English conductor, Sir August Manns, started calling the work the Polish Symphony because the last movement is based on the Polonaise, a dance with Polish origins. As is often the case, the nickname is a distraction from the symphony's true qualities. The writing of the Third Symphony coincided with the time Tchaikovsky was recovering from Nikolai Rubinstein's scathing attack on his first piano concerto. The undermining of his confidence in his own abilities is reflected in the fact that the Third Symphony is very much like a suite. Rather than four movements, there are five, with the middle three having much in common with the orchestral suites Tchaikovsky would later write. He seems to have turned to the suite as a form of orchestral composition at times of crisis in later years. The structure of the Third Symphony, then, is unique and... After relying so much on folk song in the second symphony, the third contains none at all. The core of the third symphony is the central third movement. It's based on two main ideas, a haunting melody involving triplets first heard in the bassoon and horn, and a lyrical melody later announced by the strings. Tchaikovsky later combines them as the movement reaches a climax.
During the Soviet era, which commenced within 30 years of Tchaikovsky's death, there was an official line on Tchaikovsky which was largely accepted without question in the West. A lot of documentation was put out of reach of scholars. While Tchaikovsky was portrayed as a closeted, self-hating homosexual who tried to go straight by entering into a marriage with a suicidal nymphomaniac. This story continues with Tchaikovsky attempting suicide soon after his marriage and pouring out his terror and turmoil in the Fourth Symphony and the opera Yevgeny Onyegin. You will still read these allegations in concert and recording notes today. With the fall of the USSR in 1991 and the opening up of Russian archives to musicologists, not to mention a more humane view of homosexuality, a more accurate picture of Tchaikovsky's emotional state at the time of the Fourth Symphony has emerged. Tchaikovsky's homosexuality was an open secret in a Russia where attitudes to sexuality were much more relaxed than they were in, say, England at the time. And he certainly wasn't the only known homosexual in the Russian artistic world of his day. The available evidence indicates that Tchaikovsky's marriage in July 1877 to Antonina Milyukova was not some pathetic attempt on his part to go straight, but rather a means, not uncommon today let alone then, of maintaining a veneer of social conformity. He made it quite clear to Antonina that their relationship would be platonic, something she accepted. And there's also evidence that Tchaikovsky married her in consideration of a sizable inheritance she would shortly receive. He wouldn't have been the first man to have done that either. On the other hand, there's no evidence that Tchaikovsky attempted suicide shortly after his marriage, something often stated as gospel truth. It's true that he realised within a few days that the marriage was a mistake, but his letters to his brothers make it clear that the mistake was on cultural grounds. They came from very different backgrounds, and not because of some sexual horror. In the 16 years between the end of their brief marriage and Tchaikovsky's death, Antonina maintained a stable relationship with another man and bore three children. Her mental instability didn't develop until after the composer's death. The Fourth Symphony, completed in 1878, three years after the Third, is a symphony, and symphonies usually aren't about anything. Musical commentary for the past century or more has so consistently linked Tchaikovsky's Fourth with his marriage that it's hard to realise that it actually has nothing at all to do with it. At the request of his patron, Nadezhda von Meck, Tchaikovsky provided a guide to the symphony's emotional journey, and it's true that this describes various emotional states, including despair. But the symphony isn't written in some sort of secret code which displays the composer's emotions, whatever they were. Rather, as he himself pointed out, the symphony follows a similar course to that of Beethoven's Fifth. Fate is presented, experienced, and dealt with within the formal structure of a symphony, and not in the freer, more personal and less structured context of a symphonic poem, for example. Beethoven's fifth, like his ninth, moves from darkness to light, an emotional journey not uncommon in musical and dramatic works, but this doesn't constitute anything like a story, much less a confessional. Tchaikovsky's fourth simply does exactly the same. The world-weariness, Tchaikovsky's own description, of the second movement is portrayed beautifully in an oboe melody which appears out of nowhere. Fascinatingly, 
Although this sounds like a Russian folk song, it is in fact a melody of Tchaikovsky's own invention.
Because we're so used to viewing symphonies through the glasses of German-speaking composers, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, and Brahms especially, Tchaikovsky seems to many to have had difficulty in writing symphonies. The problem, in inverted commas, is the fact that the melodies, being fully formed at their first appearance, don't always allow for further development, and development is a cornerstone of the sonata symphony tradition in the West. Many have, and still do, criticised Tchaikovsky for not following in the steps of the Viennese masters, claiming he struggled with the symphonic form. The truth is, Tchaikovsky was no fool. He knew the classical tradition well. He adored Mozart and knew the symphonies of Beethoven. Most of all, he knew the music of Brahms, who was only seven years older than he, and he didn't like what he heard. Musicologist Richard Taruskin put it this way, Tchaikovsky chose his methods quite deliberately with full knowledge of what he was rejecting. What he was rejecting, in a word, was Brahms, whose music, as Tchaikovsky put it to Madame von Meck, was made up of little fragments of something or other artfully glued together, with the result that he never expresses anything, or, if he does, he fails to do it fully. Tchaikovsky was painfully aware of a deficiency, as he saw it, in Brahms, one that came about in direct consequence of what is now generally considered his most valuable contribution. Aren't his pretensions to profundity, strength and power detestable, Tchaikovsky wrote of Brahms to another correspondent, when the content he pours into those Beethovenian forms of his is so pitiful and insignificant? These comments strongly suggest that Tchaikovsky's deviations from the Beethovenian, or at least the Brahmsian, straight and narrow, were conditioned less by a lack of symphonic aptitude than by the wish to express something fully. End quote. In 1885, seven years after the premiere of the Fourth Symphony, Tchaikovsky wrote a symphony which stands apart from the six numbered works a programmatic or descriptive symphony based on Byron's dramatic poem, Manfred. He'd been prompted to do this by Balakirev, the leader of the five, who had at times, despite their differences, been supportive and encouraging of Tchaikovsky's career. The idea for a programmatic symphony wasn't new. Beethoven's pastoral symphony was a famous precursor. But in this case, the inspiration for Balakirev was Berlioz, his symphony for viola and orchestra called Harold in Italy, also based on Byron. Berlioz had conducted it in Russia in the winter of 1867-68, and the idea for a similar work based on Byron grew out of this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Tchaikovsky initially wasn't keen on the idea of emulating Berlioz, but he became more enthusiastic after re-reading Manfred and developing his own ideas. The result, a huge symphony for large orchestra lasting about an hour, to this day divides critics and performers. 
Toscanini called it Tchaikovsky's masterpiece. Bernstein is said to have called it trash. I think it's Tchaikovsky, and for that reason alone demands our close attention. This is the end of the first movement. Three years after writing Manfred and 11 years after the Fourth Symphony, Tchaikovsky's Fifth was premiered under the composer's baton in November of 1888. Not long afterwards, he had doubts about the piece, saying in a letter to his patron, Nadezhda von Meck, that there was something repulsive about it and that it had a certain gaudiness. The Fifth Symphony is cast in the traditional four movements, but Tchaikovsky links all the movements together with the appearance of a theme heard right at the beginning. There's evidence to suggest that Tchaikovsky was at pains to impress German musicians and critics with the Fifth Symphony. Here, there's a great deal of emotional and technical weight given to all four of the movements, something which would have impressed German musicians. 
Indeed, the symphony is dedicated to Theodor Ave Lalmont, a conservative member of the Hamburg Philharmonic Society, who was known to be an opponent of descriptive program music.
Which brings us to Tchaikovsky's last symphony, perhaps his most powerful and most controversial work. Like the fourth and fifth symphonies, so much ink has been spilled trying to proclaim what this score is about. I think it's easier to state now what it's not about. The facts are simple. Tchaikovsky wrote his final symphony between February and August of 1893. He was 53 when he completed it. The composer himself conducted the premiere in St. Petersburg on the 16th of October. Nine days later, he was dead. A memorial performance of the symphony was given three weeks later, as a result of which many saw, with hindsight, resonances in the symphony with the composer's death, which Tchaikovsky never intended. Such retrospective addition of alleged meaning to the piece has hampered its serious assessment ever since. Many have seen in the dark tone of this symphony a depiction of Tchaikovsky's supposed self-loathing and depression regarding his homosexuality. The fact that he drank unboiled water in St. Petersburg during a cholera epidemic just days after the symphony's premiere has been assumed to be suicide. This is all widely believed, but the facts speak otherwise. As I mentioned earlier, Tchaikovsky's sexuality was an open secret both inside Russia and beyond. He was one of the most famous, popular and successful musicians in the world. And he was creating great music throughout the early 1890s. As one writer has said, had he felt anything like it sounds, would he have been in a fit state to write it at all, never mind so brilliantly? On top of all this, a conspiracy theory surfaced in the Soviet Union in the 1980s. The composer was supposed to have been caught having an affair with a young nobleman, which caused affront to his former schoolmates from the School of Jurisprudence. A so-called court of honour was convened to demand Tchaikovsky commit suicide after the premiere of the symphony, and the unboiled glass of water is supposed to have been the means of doing this. This story was so salacious that it was accepted as truth by many, although there is virtually no evidence to support it and much to contradict it. As for a title, Tchaikovsky settled on Patetichaskaya for the Sixth Symphony. This Russian word means more emotional or impassioned than the French version of the word, pathétique, which is usually used, might imply to English speakers. Tchaikovsky's symphony portrays emotions, passions, and as Gordon Kerry has succinctly pointed out, this work may well stem from the composer's psychological experience, but the experience is mediated by Tchaikovsky's genius and his craft. His sexuality provided a neat tragic flaw for romantic criticism and a specious reason for his music's difference from the Austro-German models, but the myth has hampered serious evaluation of the work. If it is anything, the Sixth Symphony, as the title suggests, is an oral compendium of emotional states cast in a symphonic structure. Each movement, simultaneously classic and unique in their forms, inhabits a different emotional world. The darkness and tragedy of the outer movements is usually emphasised, but the radiant beauty of the second movement, heard at the start of this program, and the hysterical energy of this, the third movement, are too easily overlooked.
As is often the case with famous works like Tchaikovsky's Fourth, Fifth and Sixth Symphonies, other works of great value or interest are often overshadowed and ignored. The first three symphonies and Manfred might not be on a par with the famous three, but at the same time they certainly don't deserve to be discounted without a fair hearing. And my experience has been that a fair hearing of these four works will reveal some real gems, perhaps even some new friends. All the musical examples in this program were drawn from the recordings of the Tchaikovsky symphonies made by the Russian National Orchestra, conducted by Mikhail Pletnyov. Pletnyov is equally well known as a pianist, and he's also a respected composer, and these recordings created quite a stir when they were released. Those looking for passion laid on in spades in the style of Herbert von Karajan or Yevgeny Mravinsky were severely disappointed and said so loudly. But those who, like me, prefer the music to be allowed to speak for itself without the accumulated patina of so-called tradition appreciated the clean, almost unadorned performances this set contains. Like most recordings, no one version will please everyone, but this set is a favourite of mine. Technical production is by Tom Ford, and my name's Graham Abbott. Catch you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.